Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index with me, your host Adam Brandon. Joining me on this episode where we're going to discuss match day two of the Commonwealth World Cup qualifiers are three guests this time. Um, so we're one down from the other day, but not to worry because I'm sure it will be fine. And I'm going to start by introducing Simon Edwards, who's on this pod as ever. How are you doing, Simon? Happy with how uh, last night turned out in the end? Yeah, I think it's uh, snatching a point. I don't know. What, I don't know what's better, more rewarding, snatching three points or snatching a point. But you know, going from getting nothing to getting something definitely felt good. And I think. Uh, glossed over a few issues for Colombia, but we'll we'll get into some details. But you know, taking four points from two games, you know, so far so good. And another familiar voice joining us is Austin Miller. How are you doing, Austin? Did you enjoy match day two? I did, Adam. I did. It was an enjoyable set of matches. Some good drama. Um, yeah, I, I had a pleasurable viewing experience yesterday. And also joining us is somebody who's making their debut on on the South American Football Show. And that's Ecuadorian Diego Gomez Gerardo. Welcome, Diego. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Um, maybe you want to just tell the listeners about about yourself a little bit. Who do, who do you support there in, in Ecuador? Uh, I support Universidad Católica. I've been living in Ecuador for the last four years. I'm Ecuadorian. I'm a translator by trade, but I love football. And I've participated in writing some articles for La Media Inglesa and some other smaller sites that never made it big. Also a whole City fan, I think uh, we should point out. (laughs) Adam, did you hear other smaller sites that never made it big? I think he's going to fit right in. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the the perfect CV for what we're doing. Yeah, no offense, James, if you're listening. Right. um, Anyway, let's get on to the pod and, and discuss match day two. Let's go in chronological order. We started the evening with Bolivia taking on Argentina. I think most of us here probably thought that Bolivia would take at least a point from this game. History suggests that. And also the fact that Bolivia had basically prepared solely to get something from this game, really, out of these two match days. It seemed like all their efforts were concentrated in getting something. Argentina, usually terrible in the in the past. But this time, Austin, I think it's fair to say this is probably the best we've ever seen Argentina play in the past and the worst we've ever seen Bolivia play there, no? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of what happened in this match. And I think overall, um, the reaction here in Buenos Aires has certainly been one of uh, joy at this result. Um, Surprise, I think, is fair to say as well. There's a lot of pride in how Argentina played. Uh, Just in the build-up to this match, I was fascinated by just how much weight was placed onto the fact that Argentina were playing at altitude. You couldn't look anywhere on your TV, on any of the sports channels for more than five minutes without a reference of the fact that not only was Argentina playing Bolivia, but they were playing Bolivia at altitude in La Paz and Argentina are always poor at altitude. And so because of that, for Argentina to be able to leave this match having taken all three points and to leave this window having taken all six points, I think is a, is a massive success for Scaloni. The football still, there's still a lot of room to grow for Argentina. I don't think there's really any doubt about that, but six points in the bag after two, you know, matches that were certainly had the possibility to be difficult. Um, Argentina will certainly be, be pleased with that into the actual match itself. Um, it, it looked as though it was going to kind of develop exactly like we expected. Um, Argentina didn't really leave a walking pace for the first kind of half an hour. Uh, Marcelo Martins Moreno nearly scored in the first kind of 10 minutes for Bolivia. He had a header that he really should have put on target that he sent wide. The angle even made it look like he, he put it in the back of the net. And for commentators who were watching on monitor, I think in various countries, at least some were fooled by that. Uh, but Bolivia, you know, they, they kind of took the initiative. Alejandro Chumacero, who I think, is the best Bolivian footballer uh, of his generation. He's probably the best Bolivian footballer active right now. Looked really good playing on the right wing, kind of dropping into a midfield role as well. And Argentina, in one of their rare forays forward, lost possession. Chumacero and Bolivia came up the other side. Cross into the box, header for Martins, goal. Bolivia, they're 1-0 up. 
And it kind of felt like, oh boy, here we go again for Argentina. Now they're going to be playing from behind. They're going to run more and they're going to get caught out. But Argentina actually had a really good spell of play um, from that point kind of ticking on towards halftime. Uh, they hit the the post, a very satisfying hit of the post. It, it should be mentioned. Uh, satisfying plunk at about half an hour played. And then right on halftime, Argentina were fortunate, I think, to score. But it was a deserved goal. Uh, scrappy situation in the box. A Bolivian defender goes to clear the ball and he clears it right into the foot of Lautaro Martinez, who I thought played particularly well for Argentina in this match. Uh, the clearance attempt right off of Lautaro's foot and into the back of the net. Not a whole lot that Boca Juniors legend Carlos Lampe could have done with that. It was bad defending from Bolivia. Um, they need to be better defending. Uh, they should have been better defending at points against Brazil in their first match. They were caught out here. It was kind of a lifeline to Argentina. Gave them a lot of momentum going into uh, the, the, the dressing room at halftime. And then coming out of that in the second half, it was Argentina who took a lot of the initiative. Um, they played well. They created chances. Bolivia didn't do that much. Argentina looked like they, they measured their effort in the altitude fairly well, which has been a problem for them. There were still moments. Um, at points, it looked as though Bolivia's best strategy was going to be to, to simply kick the ball at Nicolas Otamendi in defense and, and see what he did with it. Um, that almost turned into a dangerous situation every now and then. Bolivia made the decision to take off Chumacero uh, with about 25 minutes left. And once that happened, Bolivia really didn't have a whole lot to do in the match. Uh, they didn't have a lot of opportunities. And Argentina ended up making Bolivia pay. Uh, they gave, Bolivia gave away possession in their defensive third. Argentina took advantage. A uh, nice little interchange. Uh, question of offside, maybe, uh, uh, in the buildup. That went to a VAR review. But uh, Correa, Joaquin Correa with a really nice finish, uh, tight angle finish to make it 2-1 to Argentina. And from there, Bolivia just didn't really find a foothold. They didn't really challenge Argentina. And it's a 2-1 win for Scaloni and Argentina, and it's six points from six. But as you said, Adam, this was a disappointing showing from Bolivia. Uh, for Argentina, Palacios in the midfield, I think man of the match for me. Um, he hasn't been getting a lot of game time for, for, for Leverkusen in Germany. But he was fantastic. Uh, even considering playing at altitude, he was up and down the pitch. He was constantly running, constantly moving. And Messi, obviously, uh, he always generally plays well for Argentina. But he played well, fulfilled his role really well in this match. And he got some help from his fellow attackers. And that was the issue for Argentina. Uh, this was their first goal in World Cup qualifying by an Argentine that's not Messi uh, since 2016, I believe. So Martinez and Correa both getting on the score sheet. All in all, this was a positive window for the Argentines, and I think they'll be quite pleased with what happens, although there's still plenty of room for improvement. Yeah, but you know, the fundamentals are kind of there now, aren't they? They've got fairly solid base, and they managed just to pick up points. You know, it's quite a functional side now, and yeah, that's progress from where they were four years ago. As for Bolivia, I just found their performance so odd. The last hour, especially, it looked like they were suffering with the altitude more than more than Argentina were. And even when they were two one down, like they were passing, they were passing it amongst themselves on the halfway line. You know, in previous years, when we've watched Bolivia in these World Cup qualifiers in La Paz, that's just something they don't do. You know, they're, they're very intense. They carry on putting balls in the box, having shots from from range, you know, really putting pressure on the opposition goal. And, you know, we saw plenty of shots from range, especially in the first half, but they never really built up that, that usual pressure that they usually do in La Paz. And, yeah, a real lack of intensity for me, no, Simon? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, usually what you'll see is Bolivia, as you say, put the pressure on, um, and, you know, the altitude was evident. I saw, for example, Lautaro Martinez make a 30-yard sprint, and I was like, <laughs> it was painful to watch. I was like, mate, you're going to regret that in the next couple of seconds when your brain suddenly realized what you just did. Um, so the altitude was forever, ever present in the game. And obviously, when it when you look at the goals, I mean, it was sloppy defending from Bolivia. You'd expect them to at least... 
um, you know, keep things tight and, you know, play, play to the small percentages here and there. Um, I saw Messi take some corners that almost didn't bounce before they went straight off the pitch. So, you know, if a neutral viewers trying to get their head around the altitude, that really gave you a good impression as to how much it not only affects the, the physical condition of the players, but how it affects the, the ball and the way the ball moves and <laughs> everything you've spent 30 years uh, trying to learn with football and suddenly it doesn't happen as it should. So it was a... Uh, yeah, the, the, the best free kick taker maybe in the history of football, the best ball striker in maybe the history of football, Lionel Messi, has a free kick in the second half that is in perfect position to, you know, up and over the wall into the top corner. And he's just like, I don't know what to do with this. And he tries to go under the wall because you could just see he has no idea how to hit a ball in La Paz. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't know when it's going to come down around the goal or come down around, you know, the second row of the, the stadium. It's it's very hard to read. But, you know, for me, yeah, I mean, I think Argentina organized Otamendi isn't good enough. And I think was even at times exposed up against the 41-year-old Saicedo up top for Bolivia. All of the conditions taken into account, he's not very good on the ball, which is insane for a guy who's played under Pep Guardiola for years. So I think removing upgrading Otamendi um, will go a long way to alleviating some of my concerns with this Argentine defense but another you know another impressive win for the for the Argentines and um, as Adam says being organized doing their job with the talent they have is going to take them quite a long way Diego anything you wanted to add on this game Uh, not at all I just thought that Bolivia was quite good in the first 30 minutes 35 minutes up until um, Argentina hit the post basically then it appears like everything crumbled away and they didn't get the result that was expected and that I think they needed, particularly against a team that suffers so much in the altitude like Argentina. Yeah, if Bolivia aren't going to get three points here, it's going to be a long qualifying campaign for them. Um, this you know, kind of felt like, all right, we're going to keep nine guys back. We'll take our lick against Brazil, but we get something against Argentina and maybe we can build a sort of campaign and to leave this match with, with nothing for Bolivia, um, you know, I think we didn't really expect anything but a spoiler roll from them, and, and this definitely confirmed that. One final point on Argentina. Um, there was a really good team spirit for Argentina, it felt like. Um, they kind of approached this match in this sense of togetherness, this group, you know, Messi and Lautaro and Correa and Palacios and this whole group. The way Scaloni celebrated uh, the first goal, it almost looked like Scaloni himself was going to score the goal. He was out in like the penalty area. Yeah, I noticed that. That's pretty unusual, isn't yeah. it? At this level to see a manager celebrate quite like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that's how much it kind of meant to him. It was basically Pochettino levels away to Ajax in the Champions League semi-final. Yeah. <laughs> But it was in the first half of a game in La Paz. It was pretty extreme. Scaloni's not the best footballing mind you can find. You know, he maybe doesn't have the best tactics. But this matters to him. And and that's something that will go a long way with Argentines, who have kind of maybe been a little disillusioned with uh, the Albi Celeste over the past few years. So the way that how much this match meant to Argentina, you could see it on the players' faces. Three points here was huge for them. Weird to say, you know, the best footballer in the history of football is is celebrating a win against a team that started a 41-year-old at striker. Um, but that's what had the difficulty of playing in La Paz to Argentina, the, the mental difficulty as well for them. So three points here was huge, and I think the collective team spirit, if Argentina can keep that up, if they can keep this group unified, are they the best team on the continent? No. But they should be able to qualify and they should be able to qualify fairly comfortably if they continue to kind of put in performances like this as the cycle goes along. Yeah, and also there was um, there was a little bit of a brawl after this one, which is which is something that we, we kind of expect in, in, the, in these World Cup qualifiers from time to time. But it was it was messy at the center of it and handing out the insults. No, Austin. Yeah, he got some good ones in. Uh, Marcelo Martins was was less than thrilled with the result of the match, and I think he kind of came after Messi, which was odd because Martins and Messi, the two captains, they actually talked to each other before kickoff, and and I was totally convinced that Martins was you know getting in early on the Messi shirt race. He was like, I'm getting this shirt post game, uh, but then post game the two kind of went at it. Um, 
Martin's bringing up the infamous 6-1 defeat for Argentina in 2009, the Diego Maradona-led Argentina side. Messi coming back at him, uh, a a member of the Bolivian coaching staff in there too. But yeah, Argentines like to see that from Messi. They like to see that fiery side to him when it comes to putting on the, the national team shirt. And maybe for once, Argentina was the break that Messi needed, where we generally kind of thought of it the other way around, where Argentina was the pressure and Barcelona was was kind of the easy life. Maybe things have switched for Messi now. I don't know. Yeah, he certainly seems uh, you know, pretty fired up these days when he plays for Argentina. Anyway, let's move on um, to talk about what I thought personally was the most entertaining game to watch um, in these qualifiers, even though even if it was a little bit one-sided, and that was Ecuador 4, Uruguay 2. Diego, this was a superb performance from from Ecuador, certainly the first sort of 85 minutes anyway, before they conceded two silly penalties late on. The stars of the show were Michael Estrada, who who managed to get two goals, Mena, who who impressed from from the wing, Uh, but also, of course, World Football Index favourite Moises Casado, only 18 years old, and and he was the one who flicked on Menas Crosses, faint touch, but it definitely came off the top of his head to give Ecuador the lead and set them on the way to a very impressive performance and result. No, absolutely, we really needed that. I have not seen the national team play this well since perhaps the last qualifiers when we won our first matches at home and away. And we had 12 points at the end of the first four matches, and we were on our way to Russia. Since then, we have gone absolutely limp in our in our style. We had lost our manager. Um, then we had uh, a new federation come in that was imposed El Bolillo Gomez as their manager. And then after that did not work out in the Copa America, then they bring in Jordi Cruyff, which was the absolute... Biggest waste of time I've ever seen in a national team. And then we have Gustavo Alfaro who comes in. Gustavo Alfaro has been in charge for around a month. He does not know the players very well apart from videos and scouting. And apparently his scouting team was absolutely brilliant. They did absolutely everything correctly to prepare the match against Argentina. Where we lose 1-0 and face only two shots on target against the best player in the world. And one of the strongest sides in the Latin American qualifiers. Then we go into this match knowing that if we want to qualify to Qatar 2022, we need to win all of our matches at home. We don't expect to get anything away except perhaps the odd point at Peru, Venezuela, Bolivia. So this match was of pivotal importance to be able to give Gustavo Alfaro some breathing room. And he did absolutely everything correctly. Defensively, he has shored us up. Two shots on target, in this match as well, both of them, the penalties that Luis Suarez converted. Our team finally started playing with the pacing wingers. We have two central defenders that were absolutely brilliant away at Argentina, and even more so here against Uruguay. And of course, one of your favorite players, Moises Caicedo, who ran the show like if he was a 27-year-old player who has seen it all. And it was just absolutely brilliant to see. And an impressive cameo off the bench from Gonzalo Plata as well, a player I really enjoyed watching here in Chile in the under-20 South American Championships um, at the start of 2019. And yeah, he was key to Ecuador winning winning that tournament. And yeah, when I saw him coming on, I, 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 was, uh, I was hopeful that he would get a good run at this Uruguay defence and, and make something happen. And yeah, there was some lovely skill in the build-up and also lovely skill to to finish it off, no, to, to make it for. Absolutely. He came on and he was a man on a mission, is what I saw from him. He ran down the wing. He came up against the Uruguayan defenders who were probably extremely tired due to altitude and the fact that they were run ragged by the Ecuadorian wide men and the two strikers. And he just came and he played what he knows how to do best. And basically what he knows how to do best is run at players, win with pace, but also have that trickery. And that fourth goal, if you have not seen it, I highly recommend that you do so. It's just brilliant team play. One of the better goals that I've seen Ecuador score in perhaps the last six to ten years. Yeah, I have to I have to agree with that. Um, the other thing maybe we should just point out in this game for, for people who didn't see it. Um, so 
firstly, you know, Ecuador were winning 4-0 until like the last few minutes when, when Uruguay scored uh, t- twice from the penalty spot through Luis Suarez. But that doesn't quite tell the full story. And, and although you've said that, you know, Uruguay only had two shots on target, they did have two goals disallowed for one, which was the tightest of offsides. And that was at 1-0 in the game. And uh, and another one, which I think happened at two 0 wasn't it? It was at the start of the second half when Darwin Nunez uh, had a had a goal disallowed for for handball. Um, but Ecuador also had one ruled out, didn't they? Um, which was which was quite a tight call as well. So, although I'd say that there's no doubt that Ecuador deserved the four two victory, it could have actually been more, but. Yeah, there there was there was a couple of frights there. Um, certainly at at one nil for for Ecuador to see through. No. Yes, absolutely. After we score our first goal, which is a set play that has been practiced by Alfaro very clearly in the very short amount of time that he has had, he has that set play. And immediately after, not three or four minutes after, Uruguay get the ball to the wing, cross it, heads it in, and they rule that out with the slimmest of margins. I don't think that was an offside, to be fair. And that pretty much is something that allowed us to move forward and win the game. If we go after that 1-1, we're going to struggle quite, quite a lot. And then we have a goal ruled um, correctly because Einer Valencia handballed the ball in, in midfield while he was trying to protect his face from Godin's defense. And that's correctly ruled offside. We, then we go and we score. We make it 2-0 right before halftime. And right as the second second half begins, um, Darwin Nunez scores. It was a handball, yes. It was a VAR handball. Everything right now is just ruled out by the slimmest of margins. I think that it's very difficult to watch football now if you really want to celebrate. Because three or four, maybe five times the VAR was called in. And it took five to ten minutes and you don't know what's going on. And that was something that really had an impact on the game in reality. Yeah, it's it it interesting, maybe because I wasn't so emotionally invested that I, I didn't find the VAR too disruptive. Although, obviously, you know, it did sort of take ages for some of those those, those calls to happen. Um, but I did feel that they were sort of the right decisions this time as well. I think VAR is far more frustrating when when they take ages and you feel that not even the right decision has been reached. Um, anyway, uh, Austin, what what did what did you make of this one? Yeah, I think Diego covered the Ecuadorian side of things pretty well. I just kind of want to point out that this could be the start of some worrying signs for, for Uruguay. Um, they got three points against Chile, as we talked about on the last show. Maybe didn't deserve two of those three points. Maybe didn't deserve one of those three points. But they got all three. And I thought here they were pretty squarely outclassed in this match. Um, And so because of that, I am concerned by what I've seen from them so far and and kind of what um, is coming for Uruguay. And I think this qualification cycle, we maybe could see Uruguay turn back into that side that's scratching and clawing and fighting for everything and then ends up having to go through the playoff. Uh, The next two matches for Uruguay – very difficult. They go to Barranquilla to play Colombia on match day three, and then they host Brazil on match day four. So a quick turnaround. We're back at it again in November. There's not a lot of time between these these sets of matches. And so if Uruguay struggle there, then I then they might find themselves playing from behind as far as the table is concerned in these qualifiers. And that could make it a difficult qualifying process for them. And we just still haven't seen that midfield that we've been promised for so long from Uruguay. It's just not there. Yeah, I think I think that I think that's the most I think that's the most worrying element for me if uh, if I was to look at this from the Uruguay perspective because we've heard so much about Benton Gore and and Valverde over the years of being so key to sort of Uruguay progressing, um, but ultimately they don't fit the style of football that Tavares likes to play, and and that was my worry for them going into this qualifier. And the fact I feel that 
Also, I think some of their big leaders over the years are are either not there now, um, although Cavani will probably be back in, in November. And I think the other worry for me, uh, yeah, I, I just can't see a, the Uruguay of a few years ago certainly going four, four down to Ecuador. Um, although I know that it did happen in, what, 1997, didn't it? Diego, <laughs> I think Ecuador beat them 4 0. But. Um, but yeah, generally you don't often see Uruguay quite outclassed and out, and and outdone as much as they were um, on on Tuesday afternoon in Quito. Simon, any final thoughts on this one before we move on? Yeah, I think you've covered most of it, really. Um, Uruguay weren't very good, uh, and full respect to Ecuador, they were very dynamic. They were very effective, very efficient when they got the ball. They hit them very, very quickly and then they were very effective at breaking through. But yeah, the Godin was looking slow. Suarez was looking slow. Arrojo didn't have a great game. Um, and then, as you say, the midfield didn't really ever get hold of it. Um, the more possession Uruguay had, the less likely they looked like to score. Um, that midfield four is amongst the top three or four midfielders, midfields in South America on paper. Brian Rodriguez, we love a great, dangerous winger. Betancourt, Valverde, Nandez is a very complete uh, midfielder as well. So that four, plus you've got Maxi Gomez, who's very exciting, and Luis Suarez, that should be that should be great. And and it wasn't. It was slow, it was pedestrian, and it wasn't even difficult to... It wasn't even tough, it wasn't even resilient, which is really even a, a poor Uruguay side you, you'd expect that from. So concerning two difficult games and then they've got Argentina as well after that so um, they could be in a in a tricky place before they they get that home game to Bolivia where surely they'll uh, they'll, they'll enjoy themselves but there's three tough games coming up and it could go either way if they if they pull things together and get a good result next next game then this is all forgotten but I think there are reasons to be concerned despite the quality uh, in theory in that uh, Uruguayan side. Indeed, indeed. Let's move on to perhaps sort of the most low-key of the of the World Cup qualifiers. Although there's plenty of late drama in this one, no Austin with um, with Paraguay scoring late on, and then some goalkeeping heroics right at the death. Yeah, a one 0 win for Paraguay is how it goes down. But as you said, Adam, uh, a low-key affair at least to start this match. Uh, Slow-paced first half, nil-nil. Maybe not a lot going on, although I believe there was also a, a, a satisfying plunk of the crossbar in this game as well. Uh, but it really kicked on in the second half. And Venezuela looked as though they had taken the lead uh, with about, I think it was about an hour played, maybe a little bit more. Uh, a corner situation at the back post. It looked like Venezuela had headed in. And I believe the final call was a handball on the, the Venezuelan player who had headed it. Um, but it was a very, very long VAR decision here uh, from the Colombian referee, uh, Andres Rojas. In the end, the Venezuelan goal ruled out, and it's Paraguay, as you said, Adam, who, who took the lead late. Really nice work to play uh, down the right wing, and Jimenez it was who scored with a, a very satisfying strike for him. And just when it looked like Venezuela were going to get the chance to, to rescue a point from this match, another just not great moment of defending from Gustavo Gomez, who we talked about on the show last week after the first match day. Another moment for him where you're just left scratching your head, uh, really. Commits the penalty, just puts himself in a situation that he shouldn't put himself in. And it looks as though Venezuela are going to rescue a point. Yanhel Herrera steps up to the spot. But the Paraguayan goalkeeper, Anthony Silva, a really, really good penalty save down to his left. It wasn't a bad penalty from Herrera. Obviously, it was saved, so it could have been better. Um, it was at a savable height. But he kept it pretty far from the center. And it's the type of penalty that a lot of times will go in on a goalkeeper who's maybe not quite as tuned in as Silva was. Um, but Silva was, and he went down to his left, pawed it away, and saved the three points for Paraguay Big, I think what could prove to be um, a big, big moment for both Paraguay and probably Venezuela because this might just put Venezuela in the same spot that we talked about with Bolivia um, where they're pretty much relegated to spoilers at this point. That being said, four points here from Paraguay. Um, I think they'll be quite pleased with that. They've kept themselves right in the fight and 
I think their expectation all along is to be, you know, scratching it out for the fourth spot, the playoff spot, that sort of situation. And they've definitely done that in this window. And this was, was certainly a performance um, that I think they can be proud of. One more note on Venezuela. Um, a lot of, of, a lot kind of going on with this side, obviously a lot of players coming in and out players who aren't there. Farinias, I thought, was a lot better in this match. It could have just been a situation where he simply hadn't played coming into that match on Friday in Barranquilla. I thought he was a lot better. And the captain, Rincon, was really good in the midfield for Venezuela here, um, shutting down spaces for Almiron and for the rest of Paraguay. His performance alone probably warranted at least a point for Venezuela. Um, but it wasn't to be, and it's a big, big three points for Paraguay. Yeah, I only caught the last few minutes of this one, um, and I was really impressed with the work rate of Almiron to ensure that Paraguay took took all the points in this one. He he was doing some incredible tracking back um, late on. Uh, Simon, did did you catch much of this? Yeah, yeah, I saw I saw a fair bit. Um, for me, you know, I was I was promised that Venezuela were coming out to play. And if Jefferson Sotero's on the bench, then I don't believe you. <laughs> like, and I understand he had a bit of a knock, but um, his introduction definitely uh, livened up this game, definitely um, made a huge impact in terms of Venezuela's creativity. Uh, I think he had a big impact. He's a, fl- he's a player we love. And it looked as though at one point the, the gamble by bringing on, bringing on kind of the, the, the diminutive creator um, was going to pay off for Venezuela because they were all over Paraguay towards the end. And then... Paraguay uh, snatched a goal and uh, it was all turned on its head. So, yeah, I think this is a huge, huge win for Paraguay. Going to Venezuela is tricky. Um, they're a decent team now. They've got some good quality. Obviously, as we mentioned in the previous pod, missing a few important players um, for COVID reasons, a couple of injuries as well. So um, I think uh, with Rondon up front, they'll be... Uh, a more tricky opponent. I think uh, they'll have that focal point that they can play off, which I think they did miss in this game. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> Paraguay probably can't believe their luck, but they, they stayed in the game. They, they stayed organized. They stayed tough. As you say, Almeron covering a lot of ground. Romero is good. Is a good player as well. So yeah, I think this is great news for Paraguay. Uh, probably a bit of a devastating loss for Venezuela, given how they looked like they were getting on top of the game and it was theirs to, to, to take at the end. And uh, then they got sucker punched and, uh, and were left with nothing. So very disappointing for Venezuela. They'll come back with a few extra players. Um, but I, I want to see Soteldo start. I love Soteldo. I think he's their most gifted player by a, a decent margin. So get him on the ball, get him involved. And I think uh, Venezuela will be more fun um, to, to watch and I think probably uh, more dangerous. Yeah, they desperately need uh, Rondon to be allowed out of China as well. I think I think we should add he he was missing because the I'm not sure if it was the Chinese football authorities or the Chinese government just wouldn't let him out. I believe there's a mandatory quarantine in China for pretty much anybody, uh, especially anybody coming from South America, and so that gave his club the opportunity to decline his call up. His club as well, I believe, is involved in a relegation playoff in China as well. And that match was set to take place between these two sets of qualifiers. So because of that, uh, I believe the club was pretty adamant that they weren't going to let him go. Um, I won't uh, say that I know a ton about the Chinese football calendar, but maybe there's an opportunity that in November, if that has already wrapped itself up, that he could be released for those sets of qualifiers in November and then obviously uh, go through the quarantine process when he comes back, but with a lot more time to do that. So uh, watch this space for, for any updates on Rondon. But as we've said, he's a, a big, big loss for Venezuela. And as Simon said, Soteldo should definitely be on the pit. Yep, certainly is the case. Let's move on to talk about Peru and Brazil as that kicked off just um, about 30 minutes before the chile Colombia game, which we're going to finish with this week. Peru 2. Brazil 4 with, what, about 20, 25 minutes to go? It looked like Peru were going to take something from this. Well, 10 minutes to go, sorry. Yeah, with about 10 minutes to go, it looked like Peru were were at least going to take a point from this game. But in the end, Brazil got a couple of late goals, including a very controversial penalty to make it 3-2. That hasn't gone down well in Peru with the Chilean ref who was in charge of this one and, and the Chilean VAR team as well. 
very much the villains of the piece. Austin, I'll come back to you again because I know that, that, that you're all over this one as well. Do you think that this was a deserved three points for Brazil in the end, or you thought they were a little bit lucky to get away with all? Man, Adam, do you want do you want them to let me in to Lima the next time I have to go there? Um, I I don't know if it was a deserved three points for Brazil. Uh, I think Peru obviously feel hard done, and they probably should have been able to take at least a point from this match. It looked as though they might take all three uh, at various points. To be completely honest with you. Um, the first goal from Andre Carillo, um, look that goal up. I think if you see just one goal from this week's, uh, Conable World Cup qualifiers, look that one up. Um, a kind of half volleyed affair where he took it out of the air and just absolutely ripped it past Weberton. Um, it got an audible golasso from me watching here in my apartment. So thumbs up to Carillo for that effort. He's been, re- he was really good for Peru in this window. Um, he opened things up. Neymar from the penalty spot. Um, I think the first penalty was maybe a bit less controversial than the second one. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that to you guys to kind of dissect and discuss. Um, Neymar, a really well-taken penalty. Both of the penalties that Neymar took in this match were, were top class. Uh, he executed the, the stutter run about as well as it can be done. Uh, the first penalty, I believe, even kissed off the post. That's how good it was. Uh, no chance for Gajese on, on either of those. He ended up getting a hat trick for himself here in this match, um, but yeah, so so one one going into halftime, um, Peru had their moments. Brazil definitely had their moments as well, um, and then Tapia gives gives Peru the lead in the second half with an hour played, um, and at that point it really looked like Peru were going to get something from this match, um, and then Richarlison scores for Brazil to make it 2-2. Bar controversy on that goal as well from Richarlison. Offside, I believe, was the question. Uh, long, long review before it was eventually given to make it 2-2 for Brazil. But even then, it, it kind of felt like, all right, Peru are going to scrap this out. They're going to take a point and two points from their first two matches. I think they'd be okay with that. And then, obviously, the, the controversial penalty situation. Um, again, as I said, I'll, I'll let you – I'll let – Simon maybe maybe take that one and give his opinion there first. But in the end, a 4-2 win for Brazil, six points for Brazil. They're top of the table, and kind of as we expected, I don't know that they're going to be challenged too often. But Peru certainly did their best to challenge them this match. I think this was a positive performance from Peru, a lot that they can take from this. Uh, we should also mention Carlos Zambrano sent off. Um, maybe this one wasn't quite as much of a red card offense, but he was also the Peruvian who was at the center of the uh, lack of a red card in their first match against Paraguay. So maybe that came back to to a haunt him here. But at the end of the day, three points for Brazil. I think they are well on their way to Qatar. I think that's an easy thing to say. And for Peru, uh, things to build on, I think it's fair to say. No, Simon? Yeah, yeah, obviously. um, Lots of uh, positive news uh, for Peru. Uh, Competitive performance. Um, if you finish a game against Brazil and you feel incredibly hard done by it and the world is against you, then you've probably done quite a few things right. So I was uh, mostly watching the Colombian game, but um, it was great to see uh, a lot of Peru fans very animated. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, they feel very disappointed with the result. So look, I think for this Peru side to come that close um, is a real credit to, to what they've what they've done in terms of their organization, in terms of how they've prepared for these these games without a kind of notable striker. Obviously, Farfan is a has been a very good player, but he, he isn't that focal point number nine that Pru are generally built around. So to to get this midfield solid, you know, and I like Tapia, Jotun, Aquino is a very good midfield three. They got the pace out wide. You know, I think it's a it's a well balanced team. This is what we expected from Peru. They've been the most consistent over the years. This is the same Peru we saw four or five years ago uh, with a, you know one or two new faces here or there. They've got a great goalkeeper in Cagliese who also had a, a number of important contributions. So, you know, if, if Peru fans can finish a game against, I think we probably would say the best team in South American qualifying this year, feeling incredibly hard done by. Um, it won't be much consolation this time round, but obviously gives them a lot of hope for for next month when we go again. Yeah, it, it wasn't a penalty for me, but for the second one that that Neymar got, I found it a very odd decision, um, and I think it also highlighted an issue where if you've got a, 
referee of one nationality and you've also got the head VAR person of the same nationality in the room. So it's quite likely that they're friends and they're going to back each other up in, in whatever scenario. I don't think that's a good idea. So I think Commonwealth need to look at at least having a, a VAR team of a different country to the one actually refereeing, refereeing it on the, on the field. So you, so you do get kind of two, um, two teams having a look at it rather than just one. Diego, what did you make of the, the controversy? I want to get your opinion here and kind of throw you to the wolves, if you will. I think um, the referees, the standard refereeing in the world, and particularly in Latin America, is very, very poor. And if you throw in that they have to use the video assistant referee to make decisions, they're not going to get them right most of the time. And when they do, it's going to take too long. And even if they get it right, people are going to feel completely aggrieved by it. So it's very, very difficult on them. Partly it's their fault, but that's just my opinion on how bad the refereeing standard is. I don't know what you think about that. Well, one, one thing I noticed is the number of games going over 100 minutes. It seems to be normal now in South America that we get 10 minutes plus injury time. Um, and there were games I saw this week which had no real controversial issues, particularly a f- uh, you know, no real long injuries, but we still had 103, 104 minutes. You know, if you if you just glance at the screen, you think you were in extra time, uh, and that yeah, all just comes saw, down to VAR decisions. I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw some some study. Um, I don't know if it was done just in the European leagues or something that said like the average um, VAR decision took less than about twenty five seconds or something like that. I thought, well, come and come and watch a few games in South America, and I can guarantee you, it doesn't take an average of twenty five seconds to reach to reach a decision using VAR. The crazy thing is, they spend three minutes trying to decide if they're going to make a decision. Like, it takes three, four minutes before the referee decides whether he's going to go over and look at the screen or is informed to look at the screen. It's like, just if you're going to look at the screen, go look at the screen. Like, we spend five minutes thinking about thinking about the decision. And uh, I, we'll talk about in a second, I imagine, the Colombian uh, the, the, the Columbia decision. But I was like, quick, take the throw in, take the throw in before they, uh, they go and have a look at the monitors, because I think this is going to be a bad decision. Um, so if, I think if, if Columbia had taken the throw in quickly, then maybe it would have put everyone in an awkward decision, because the referee was ready to continue, and Columbia delayed it, and then they said, oh, no, let's check at the VAR, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to bring up a few more controversies over the next 16 games. Right, well, let's get into the, the final match of, of match day two. And that was Chile 2, Colombia 2. The first sort of 30 minutes of this match was very much in Colombia's favour. Um, probably until the 27th minute, actually, when, when Medina went off injured. I think that was the first key moment in this game um, to sort of w- which turned the tide a little bit. Colombia had taken an early lead through a through a Lerma header, um, but yeah, when Medina went off on 27 minutes, Chile kind of took control after that and and ended up getting an equaliser and then even taking the lead before half time. Um, and Chile, from my perspective, um, started the second half well enough. And I thought, oh, this is looking pretty promising. Colombia weren't really offering much. But then in the last sort of 30 minutes, Chile sat deeper and deeper. Um, and they had no out ball um, with Eduardo Vargas for the second game running, giving a really, really poor performance um, in the central striker role. Just didn't hold it up when he had the chance to pass on the counter. He, he either made the wrong pass or or made a bad pass. So, yeah, it it was it, it was very frustrating and and as you say Simon there was the there was the VAR decision. Um there was VAR decisions in this match first for the Chile penalty which which made it 1-1. I thought that was a correct call in the end. I thought it was dodgy at first, but the more I looked at it, the more I thought it was the right call. Um, and then there was a there was another decision in the second half where it looked like Colombia had equalised, um, 
that didn't go to VAR in the, in the end. I think they probably reviewed it, but the, they didn't ask the referee to look at it on the monitor anyway. Um, that's because I think you could see a push there. I know that, Simon, <laughs> you don't agree with that, but yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and But in the end, Colombia's pressure told and, and the fact that Chile's just sat back for too long. Um, I, I could sense that equaliser coming and it eventually came in, in injury time through that man, Ranamal Falcao. Um, from the Colombia perspective, Simon, what did you make of it? Because everyone here in Chile is obviously pretty disappointed, but yeah, there are a few caveats to that. The fact that Chile had quite a few players missing and, and also this could have easily been a defeat um, given how the first sort of 25 minutes or so went. Yeah, for me, I was I was very impressed with the application from Chile. Um, they made it really hard. Um, they were very professional. I think um, Chile have what Colombia lack in terms of managing a game, in terms of those fine those fine differences. I think Chile are very good at uh, uh, making a strong tackle that kind of upsets the opponents, or maybe you know earning a foul here or there. You know, fully creditable, very impressive kind of game management. That all that experience that that Chile have, I think, um, really shows, and I think that they they play very precise sharp football i don't think they necessarily have the individuals to to go and send someone off on a 30 yard run but i think what they do do they do very effectively and efficiently so i was impressed by by chile um i think as you say colombia started very well uh, and it's interesting that medina has become so important for colombia um because when he went off injured um which was unfortunate the second right back colombia have lost this week um, with Adias taking a long-term injury. It looks like Medina's isn't um, as, as serious. He tried to continue and, and just decided it, it wasn't it wasn't happening. They put Cuadrado right back. And Cuadrado has been incredibly good for Colombia. This 4-3-3 that Colombia play with Cuadrado is part of the midfield three, but often overlapping hammers on the right and, and playing quite far forwards, protecting the fullback. He's been superb in midfield, but... He, you know, there's been calls to play Cuadrado at right back. And, and in terms of attacking play, I can see it. But wow, he, he struggled. He struggled a lot um, with uh, Yislav in a really good game up against him, on, you know, breaking forward from, from left back. Um, so, yeah, Cuadrado, I think, was partly at fault for the goal. The penalty, I, I have no complaints. I think it was unfortunate. Lerma was looking to clear the ball. Uh, I think it was Vidal got there first and Lema cleared <laughs> Vidal's leg. Um, so fair enough. Uh, with the Colombia disallowed goal, it's hard to see. It's hard to see. I think I can understand why Colombian fans are frustrated because it isn't necessarily obvious that there was, you know, an intentional push or, you know, a difficult, difficult one. And I, 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 I saw Vidal swing a leg as well in the first half. Uh, he got a yellow card. It was a very soft one. I, I can't really complain, but... Another day, maybe he gets a red card for that kicking out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. wait, wait! Whoa, if we're gonna if we're gonna discuss the Vidal red card, we need to discuss the possibility that Hammers could have been sent off for a stamp on uh, Alexis Sanchez's ankle. A stamp might be a bit of extreme, but certainly a late one on and a studs into Alexis Sanchez's ankle. I've certainly seen red cards given for that. Yeah, it was it was not an easy game to officiate, so <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I, I, I'll 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 call that I'll call that evens. Um, but in terms of this game, I think the players who were the most impressive in the previous, some of them really struggled. Lema had a great game. Lema was everywhere. Lema was making a a huge impression on this game, mostly for good. <laughs> he was definitely a yeah. sometimes he, bad as well. He, 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 you know, it's obvious to say because he scored the goal, but he was kind of the difference for me in that first 25 minutes. I was like, I, I'd pre, I'd watched him just what, two weeks ago against Norwich for Bournemouth. And he had an okay game that day, but nothing, nothing like this. And I was like, what, what, where, where's this performance come from? But then I felt that he got too fired up and he started trying to shithouse a little bit against Vidal. And if you're going to try and shithouse against Vidal, it's probably going to turn out badly. And of course, he was the one who got, who, who got too fired up and ended up uh, giving away that penalty against Vidal. And, and you know, that they were, yeah, they were at each other all night. Um, 
but yeah, I, I agree with you that he was he was certainly brilliant in the sort of the first twenty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, he was very energetic, and I think Mojica was important breaking forward from the left. Although his crossing at times was a little bit wayward. <laughs> Duvan Zapata actually played the full ninety, but really didn't have uh, a great impact on the game. James grew into the game, I think. At when Colombia became quite disjointed at the start of the second half, James was struggling. But as Chile dropped back a little bit to try to protect the result, uh, it allowed James to find more space and be more impactful. Also, Steven Alzate is the guy who came on from Medina in the first half, and he had a good game. I think with Alzate, he, he's been getting a bit of stick as well, which I think just comes down to Colombian commentators being quite stupid, to be honest. But I think Alzate grew into the game, and he's a player who's used to the pace of the Premier League. He's a player who dealt with this very high-intensity game because at times when Colombia broke into the, the middle of the field, they just bang. As soon as they went into that midfield three of Chile, they lost the ball. They were snapping at their heels. They were very, very uh, organised, very compact, very intense. So Alessati, I think, dealt with that fairly well. And, and as the game progressed, grew into things and was quite impressive. So, yeah, I think Colombia will be very happy to take this... Uh, this point. Another strange point is that Colombia had four goalkeepers and yet no substitute left winger, which meant that Alfredo Morelos um, was uh, stuck on the left wing, um, which clearly isn't his position. So that was a bit of a strange decision. I don't really know why you need four goalkeepers, um, but you know, fair enough. We could have done maybe with four right backs because they were getting injured this week. But yeah, in terms of the result overall, four points from two games. Um, I think Colombia started very comfortably, very confidently. Um, that injury and then those two goals out of uh, very quick back-to-back goals. The first with the unfortunate, I think, penalty, a, a correct decision, but unfortunate in terms of being a bit of a mistake, I think, on the clearance. And then hitting them straight after with a Cuadrado getting caught flat-footed to, to lead to the second goal. That really shocked Colombia. But in, on a positive side of things, Colombia hung in the game and grew into things later on, which shows um, some character. Uh, and that's something Quiroz has been talking up, that Colombia stayed with Chile, didn't let the game get away from them, and then were, were rewarded later on with, with that man Falcao coming off the bench and uh, uh, deflect, uh, deflecting a shot into the goal. And, and uh, yeah, again, I, I, Adam, how popular is Falcao there in, uh, in Chile? I can't imagine he's a, he's a particular favourite. I, I don't think anybody has a, has a particular issue, issue with him. Ultimately, yeah, he's he, he scored a couple of vital goals, a couple of vital equalisers against Chile over the years. But um, I, you know, he's he he's done nothing. He's done he's done nothing to make people hate him. What about what about the like. what about the plot with Peru? Oh right, yeah. <laughs> I guess you could. Yeah, I get. I get. I guess you could add that into it. But again, I, a lot a lot of people here in Chile. Um, were more upset with the collapse of Chile in those World Cup qualifiers than they were about the Pact of Lima in the end. Um, Although I suspect some people maybe still hold a grudge, but nobody that I I speak to um, really remembers uh, Falcao in a a bad way for that. I think think Chile probably would have done similar in a similar situation anyway. No, I think on the Alzati point about him not being maybe as rated in Colombia as as he is by people who, who regularly watch him in the Premier League, maybe. I, I, I think this is a bias that we have seen in South America over the years and, and arguably the most ridiculous and uh, famous example of this, of course, is Messi. You know, the fact that he doesn't have what you'd call like a constituency in his own country because he never played um, you know professionally in in Argentina before before going to Europe because um, you know he went over when he was 12 um, you know he hasn't got that media pulling for him to be included whether but they be based in you know in Alzati's um, case somewhere in Colombia like he doesn't have the, like the Bogota media all pulling for him, for example. Yeah, um, as maybe a player at, at um, Santa Fe would. Yeah. So, 
yeah, it's yeah. I always find that quite a quite an interesting thing over here because I saw um, uh, somebody say a, a journalist say, "Ah, there must be ten players better than our Saturday in Colombia," and some of the replies, like, "I never, I now, I don't know if they're joking or not, but I see." Teofilo Gutierrez brought up by junior fans all the time and it's ridiculous. I see, claro, pues, Teofilo es un crack, pues, no, dale, pues, mejor. It's like, are you, are you joking? Teofilo Gutierrez? Oh, oh, that man is the bane of my existence. All respect for him in 2014, right? But this is 2020, guys. Come on. He struggles in the Copa Libertadores against you know venezuelan opposition he is not the man to go to, go to solve colombia's creative issues oh yeah. anyway personal personal uh, uh feud i have got ongoing with teofilo i'm sorry i had to slip that one in one thing i'd like to say on this match adam and maybe you can talk a bit more about this as well is i was really impressed with chile's golden generation players if you will and, and maybe all that's really left is, is sanchez and vidal um, but I thought they were really, really good in this match, and I thought they were really, really good against Uruguay as well. Um, really, really good performance, I thought, from Alexis Sanchez. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, this is probably the best we've seen Alexis Sanchez now since maybe 2017, I, I would say, um, in a chilly shirt anyway. I'm thinking of writing a, writing a piece on this anyway, possibly for World Football Index in the, in the, in the next few days. But I, I think that Alexis Sanchez got overly criticised um, in, in the last couple of years. Obviously, his performances weren't good enough on the pitch. But you know, anybody who looked at, at into the reasons why that might be would would be able to maybe excuse it. You know, he he was a player that ultimately played sort of eight nine years um, in in the. At the, at the top of the game, um, giving top performances every week for club and country. There was always going to be a time, especially without hardly any breaks in the summer, where his body and his mind were going to break down at some point. And, you know, and they did. And, and he is one of the players in the world um, who does seem to have benefited from the break that COVID gave, gave footballers for five months. Because that was Sanchez's, you know, real break not of not being injured and, and not having to play every week um that he'd been that he'd been after so um so yeah hopefully he can continue this level of performance um in, in next month's qualifiers because they're going to have a real chance i think of picking up um four to six points against peru and venezuela in the, in the november qualifiers if vidal and sanchez are fit and playing to the standard they did in these two matches. Something that I felt that was interesting with the Chile match is that it's a classic Reinaldo Rueda match that he controls the game for a really long time. Then the 70th minute comes around and he's just completely dropping back and defending what he has. And I saw that when he was um, the national manager for Ecuador and it oftentimes worked, but you always felt that the goal was coming. I don't know what you think about him as a manager or if this is something that only I feel or that you feel as well. Yeah, I think I think uh, obviously it would have been difficult for Chile to have maintained the intensity that they were playing at because again that's what struck me. The the intensity in midfield was was incredible. And again there's there's a question, you know, did they have to drop off? Because I think that they gave space particularly to Hamas um to kind of start to to dictate things. It allowed Cuadrado to get further forward, Mojica to push on a little bit. I think if Colombia had faced that intensity that kind of in-your-face attitude, which had served Chile very well, particularly at the start of the second half. Um, if Chile could have maintained that, I didn't, I can't see Colombia getting back into the game. So I think the question maybe is, with this, a few ageing players in the Chilean side, did they have to take a, a step back to kind of uh, play a little bit more compact? Because... You know, absolutely, I agree. On the face of things, if Chile had maintained that intensity for the full 90 minutes and played and pressured Colombia further forward and allowed Colombia, uh, prevented Colombia's defensive midfielders progressing the ball forward, and they were very, very effective at doing that. And Colombia, after those two goals from Chile, really struggled to get a foothold in the game. And I think they were 
somewhat let back in by Chile taking a step back. So I agree. If Chile had the legs to have maintained that, I think it would have suited them well. Uh, obviously, Rueda is a, a manager I have a great deal of respect for, for what he did in Colombia. Um, but I, I can see what you mean. Um, and, and I do think Colombia did really get a bit of a breath, uh, a, a, a bit of freedom, a bit of momentum, uh, which was allowed by Chile taking that step back. So um, I can understand why. And yeah. obviously it was a 92nd minute, so they were very almost got away with it. But I think that that did allow Colombia to feel a bit more comfortable in the game. Yeah, I, f- I felt that Chile dealt with James pretty well all night. The the main danger he posed really was was on set pieces and, and corners that we kept giving away. You know, his, his delivery is, is superb from those. Um, as for Diego's question about um, what I think of Ruela's tactics in general, well, yeah, I, I kind of agree that it's frustrating to see um, Chile drop back um, and his teams drop back in general in the, in the last 20 minutes of games. Um, and but what I what what I would say is that I think that is a tactic that could work, but it just doesn't work with this group of players because he hasn't got, as I was saying earlier, the outball for for a counter attack, um, especially in that second half where you had Alessio Sanchez. He was pretty much playing on one leg because he had both a groin injury and an ankle injury, and you have Vargas who is in the worst form I've ever seen him in a in a Chile shirt. But then again, that is the fault of Verrueta as well, because I felt that he could have made changes there um, to give Chile um, some fresh legs on, on the counter. Or the other option he had was Leandro Benegas, who he had brought into the squad late, who who can play sort of more of a either a wide target man role or a target man role and, and hold the ball up um, to bring others into it. So, yeah, that, that was the frustrating thing for me. I'm, I'm like... Why call up some of these players if you're not going to trust them in, in, in that situation where Chile, for me, desperately needed some fresh legs going into those last few minutes? I think they only made uh, one sub sort of before the 88th minute and well, it just wasn't enough for me, especially when you can make five. And the other thing I thought he could have done, and I just kind of disagree a bit with Simon early when he was speaking about Chile's game management because I thought... That was lacking here a bit in the last few minutes. What we saw Uruguay do against Chile the other day was basically excellent game management because when Chile had all the possession, all the rhythm, yeah, Uruguay went down. They they made five subs. They made five subs in the space of about 15, 20 minutes, and they just took all the rhythm out of Chile's game. And I felt that that is something that Chile could have done to Colombia in this one. They could have used the subs to take some of the rhythm out of the game um, and um, and waste some valuable seconds as well. But yeah, um, overall, given the amount of players Chile were missing and Eric Polgar, especially in defensive midfield, it was a huge miss. Claudio Bravo in goal as well for his leadership skills um, is a big miss as well. And with Chile getting those players back next month, I'm confident that they can start to pick up um, a win or two um, before before the end of the year. Anyway, I think I think that's us done for, for this week's edition of the South American Football Show. I'll just go around the virtual table just to get people's Twitter handles and, and then I think they want to plug. Um, Simon, I'll come back to you first. Yeah, so on Twitter, at Simon Edwards SAF. Um, so, yeah, follow me for Twitter for... Lots of stuff on Colombian players. Also, we have the Patreon. A few quid a month, you can get hours of extra content. Um, There's some profiles going up on some of the best young Colombian talents. Uh, Also, City Guides. Adam, you're you're due on one very soon, I imagine. Uh, Hopefully. Um, And also, there's plenty of stuff up there. Hours and hours of content. You can sign up. You can cancel any time. Give it a go. A few quid. Check it out if you like it you like it uh helps us out as well so uh i would i would ask if uh if you're interested kind of check that out and uh yeah looking forward to Libertadores back next right yeah Libertadores back and then more south american qualifiers coming up so plenty of south american football so make sure you go and subscribe as well make sure you're you're ready for the next episodes diego where can people find you um on twitter at tiger abroad mostly tweet about whole city politics so 
if you don't like that, then <laughs> I doubt that you like my Twitter handle. But yeah, thank you very much for having me once again. No, uh, more than welcome. Excellent debut. And Austin? Adam, I just want to say I, I finally figured out why, why you invited Diego on the show is you want somebody who is a fan of an English football team lower down the pyramid than your beloved Norwich and my beloved Stoke City, right? Yeah, that, you've, uh, you've unearthed my plan there, Austin. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. Lots of scouting spotlight specials that are out there. As Simon said, Libertador is back next week. Enough drama, I think, in uh, setting the, the field for the round of 16. Uh, that draw will take place next Friday. Then after that, the Comable Sudamericana is back for two weeks. So uh, get excited if you're not already excited for that competition. And then the qualifiers are back again in November. So plenty of South American football coming your way. I would also encourage our listeners to follow the official accounts of both the Libertadores and the Sudamericana at the Libertadores and at the Sudamericana for all of the updates and goals and highlights and everything else you could want from those two competitions. Okay, and that wraps us up for, for, for this week's edition. So, just left for me to say a huge thanks to Diego, Austin and Simon for joining me to discuss all this. We'll be back with the last round of Copper Libertadores action in, in, a, in a week or so. And we'll also be back, of course, in, in November to, to wrap up match days three and four of, of these World Cup qualifiers. So join us for that. Rate and review us on iTunes if you get the chance as well. A huge thanks to our listeners and goodbye. Goodbye.